I knew the dream was offering me some sort of clue dredged out from the day's events by my subconscious. When you live in a country governed by the seasons and the power of nature, there's a deep-seated belief in the sacredness of the world around you. To survive in a land this harsh, you need respect. There's an element of shamanism buried deep in Kyrgyz culture, a knowledge that recognizes mystic places, sacred mountains, the superstitions and beliefs that underscore the way we live. We never place the round, flatbread lepeshka upside down on a plate, or fill a cup to the brim with chai. We don't disturb brightly colored cloths tied to a branch or a rock. To do so is to insult the gifts of nature, or to issue a challenge to forces we don't even comprehend. Sometimes the job's simply about keeping an open mind, rearranging facts, until you start to see patterns. But over the years, I've learned dreams can hint at something, even if I can't always work out what it is. It's more than simply sifting clues or watching how seemingly random patterns form a new way of seeing things. Dreams let me step away from myself, allow me to reach an understanding with my surroundings, the smells, the sounds, the mutter of wind stirring the grass on the high jalu. The cynical might call it grasping at straws or following a hunch or desperation. I call it listening to the songs of the dead, telling me how they died, why, and who stole their breath. And sometimes it's about seeing the world through the eyes of the thief. I spent the next two days making phone calls, using the list that Gurminya had given me of all the orphans whose identity bands were in front of me as I spoke. None of them seemed connected to each other, and a couple hung up on me once I started to explain the reason for my call. None of them had been in the same orphanage at the same time as anyone else on the list. Four men, three women, living in different parts of the country, with nothing in common apart from their time in the care of the state. A time that didn't seem to have many happy memories for them. I also contacted their local police stations to see if there was anything against them. One man accused of selling weed a couple of car crashes, nothing that tied them to seven small bodies. Yusupov was due to go back to Bishkek the following day, taking the bodies with him to store in the morgue in the hope that we might find out their identities. My new boss in Bishkek, the replacement for the chief, a paper pusher and political appointment called Lavrov, had already called me twice, stressing the need for a quick solution to the crime. I did think about asking him if he had any ideas, but the only investigating he'd ever done was looking for his car keys, which meant it was time to find out exactly what Yusupov wasn't telling me. Kenesh, I need to know what's going on. We were in the hotel lobby, empty apart from the two of us, and a receptionist engrossed in texting her friends. 
It made sense to talk here. I know enough about wired interrogation rooms to avoid having a conversation in any police station. I sat back on the lumpy hotel sofa and stared at Yusupov, saying nothing. All too often, it's what you don't say that gives you the edge. Yusupov looked around, his usual calm gone, avoiding my eyes, his glasses catching the harsh mid-morning light from the window. His unease infected me, and my fingers touched the cold metal of my yerigin. Akil, the best thing you can do is tiptoe away and make sure the door doesn't slam behind you. This is a crime you don't want to solve. His unusual use of my name was even more disconcerting than the warning he gave.